Welcome to Discograffiti's Private Press, the mostly Patreon-exclusive podcast that takes buried treasure one step farther. This treasure is buried so freaking deep, odds are you won't ever be crossing paths with it, not at least in its original iteration. And so thus, if music's your thing, and I mean, come on, here we are, it's, it's your thing then man, I am legitimately psyched for you because this is the logical end game of the music deep dive, extending endlessly in every direction, the holiest of all rabbit holes, the private press universe. Tonight, we've got a legitimately special program planned. Up until now, it's been only Paul Major and I on the program, but tonight we have an even specialer guest than even the venerable Paul Major, Paul, is that even fair to say? It's very fair to say. I have uh, little tingles down my spine here going on now. I got the same, same tingles. Anyhow, I digress. I'm Dave Gebra. I'm Paul Major. In this episode of The Private Press, we'll be lifting the lathe on the 1,000 copies of Michael Farnetti's 1976 Private Press LP, Good Morning Kisses. And here with us today, we have the man himself, Michael Farnetti. Well, hello, hello, you guys, and thank you so much for uh, including me in on this uh, talk session. And I, I'm really honored to that uh, you guys are spending the time to uh, talk about this. On August 22nd, I was reading Pitchfork, uh, which is a, a music uh, dealie, and there it was, an article about what Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords was listening to these days. I was scrolling down. I, I read his picks, Bill Fay, Kate LeBond, Leon Russell. Okay, I know all this stuff, all good, but not very divisive choices. And then there it was, down at the bottom of the list, Michael Farnetti. And what he said about it was the following. Don't put this at the top of the list because it's going to freak people out. This is one where a little goes a long way. It's like a DIY backerack. He only did one album, and his 12-year-old brother played the drums on it. More on that later. It's kind of homemade disco, and it's all a little bit not quite right, but it's awesome. So I kind of did one of those old-fashioned double spit-take deals because Paul and I were already at that point moving ahead with this episode about you, Michael, um, seeing as you are objectively one of the greatest private press artists who has ever lived and uh, since paul yet again as it is in so many of these tales he was the one who brought you and your record to light in in addition is a very special episode for a very special reason we've been in a sort of amassing tons of shows kind of mode but the intention from the very beginning was for this to be a television show and in so many ways this episode marks the very first time that Paul and I will be adapting the format that we'll be utilizing on the TV show itself, wherein we'll actually be tracking down the artists themselves to be part of this wild ride. Have you guys ever met? Not in person, but uh, 20 years ago, and this is probably not too long after I had gotten the album. Uh, it blew my mind, of course, and uh, was one of those records that I couldn't file next to any other private pressing I know, it occupied its own space with the elements in it and everything I was, you know, my imagination was being triggered. And uh, then I got a hold of Michael uh, around that time. Of course, I was, you know, hoping maybe there are copies of the album around since I was uh, injecting these albums into the world and so forth. But 
the most important uh, motivating thing for me with this private press world is to me, it's revealing of real people's lives and humanity. So when I would come across some interesting looking record, it, usually at flea markets or in used record stores because it was a private pressing and there was no internet, no database of, uh, of things, things were still lost like buried treasure. And I, I would almost think of the record as kind of a calling card into uh, the mind of the person who made it and would have to know the circumstances of their life, uh, what music means to them, knowing that uh, music would be very central to their life as it is to mine. How'd you find it? And this is one of those ones I can't remember exactly because I used to go to all these big flea markets. I would drive all around to use record shops and, uh, you know, look for the local records to the area there and anything that's local to anybody any other place, actually for a long time, it had contacts in all the major areas around the country saying, you know, send me boxes of all of the private pressings, all the local records. If you send me something that's just a, a boring, you know, James Taylor wannabe with no interesting characteristics from Omaha or something, I'll either send it back or, you know, throw it in the junk pile. But but uh, out of each of these boxes, there would usually be one or two uh, records that would be just mind opening to me. And uh, I would get this little bit of a, a feel like, OK, the adventure begins. Also, I'd uh, probably you know bought a whole bunch of records uh, at the time. So it was sitting in a, uh, piles of records that I had in my room that I hadn't listened to. And at that time, almost seven days a week, I'd wake up and I'd start playing one unknown record to me after another all day and still couldn't catch up with everything and remember uh, the experience of hearing yes this as soon time? as i put the record on i remember it quite vividly it was up in new hampshire uh when i was uh married living up there and as soon as i heard the very first seconds of the record with the ooh, sort of thing it was like I felt that is almost like a, a prelude to, you know, knowing that this sort of like opens this door and where does it go? And uh, whoa, all of a sudden you're uh, with the, you know, jet set <laughs> heading over uh, to Europe and uh, I'm already getting imagery in my head. Uh, okay. There's definitely this sort of European feel to the song to me. And I'm, I'm thinking I can hear this, as a hit record uh, by somebody like a, a vocalist or something like that being covered by other people already. The song is so to the point. And uh, that's just in, in the first uh, song. When we got to Movie Star, that's when things went. Uh, and this is a reflection of me and my coming up with psychedelic uh, music being the motivator that led me into uh, open my mind to all kinds of music. I still have that perception in my head uh, where when something is very different to me, it gets a little psychedelic and uh movie star did that to me. Uh, the way the cascading pianos are rolling uh, uh, through it, they're yeah. like shimmering and uh, the urgency of the chord changes. It seemed like that song is coming at me like uh, in my mind, like when a little bit of acid first kicks in and things just start 
whoa, you're, you're getting on the escalator to some some other world. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna guess that Michael, you've not done LSD. Is that correct? That's correct. I, I had never had. No. The the reason I'm bringing this up is that you know the, one of the most exciting things about this project to me is that a lot of the effects that it winds up having on the listener aren't necessarily intentional. But I don't mean that in any way except a down on my knees and supplication. Like, how did you? do that kind of a way. What I see is obvious influences that ha would have had to have been uh, influences. When I ran them by you, you you had not heard of them. Uh, so the best kind of genius, which is an accidental genius, to me anyway. Or I don't know if I'd pick the word accidental exactly. I'd say sort of serendipitously fresh and pure and real. Well, the thing about, um, you know, all poetry, <laughs> Uh, once you put it out there, it's, you know, subject to anyone's interpretation and anyone's interpretation is legitimate. There's no, you know, you can't say, well, you, you know, you can't think that about this, but because that's their legitimate interpretation. So pretty much, I think I would say everything is accidental <laughs> because, you know, a lot of it has, right. you know, nothing to do with what you intended anyway. <laughs> I'm not like Paul. I mean, Paul is the king of the subterranean underworld. I am uh, a recent visitor uh, and I love it, but uh, I don't know as many private press records as he, but that being said, I know more than the average person. Good Morning Kisses is my favorite private press album of all time. And uh, that's why this experience is so special for me, having you on. My experience with the record is not like Paul's, where I was immediately transported. To me, the craziest thing about your record is that... The first couple songs, you're taken by surprise because it seems like there's one type of music that you're going to be like a disco sort of a thing, like your take maybe on it. But then when it gets to ESP Switch and especially 19th Summer, we have taken a hard left turn that there's no way anyone could have seen coming musically. I was trying to show a broad example of what I could do. I mean, I wanted to do country. I wanted to do a little rock. I wanted to do a little disco and sort of try to show that I could do, you know, in a demo record sort of way. Hey, I can do all the, you know, different styles of music. Tell it. Well, tell us about your musical background and your background in general. You came up in, you grew up in Florida, right? Grew up in Florida in a place called Singer Island, named after Paris Singer, the sewing machine guy. My mother bought me a guitar with uh, stamps. Back in those days, you would collect green stamps and you put them in a book and you filled the book and you know finally she got me a guitar and it was a acoustic guitar and it was horrible i mean the strings were like so high off the fret I, you know uh, later on i went back and played it i couldn't even play it in any event i did develop some good calluses with that and then you know began singing and playing the first time i actually played out it was at a talent contest at the junior high school i used that guitar and i sang i sang can't buy me love but i, and I was scared to death but i just went out and did it you know when did you start writing music? Even then, I was like playing with it. I remember I wrote a couple little surf songs and stuff, but I wasn't like really sitting down to seriously do it. It was sort of like, 
you know, haphazard little things. Was this before you studied music theory and so forth and composition? I, I worked. I mowed lawns during the summer. And, you know, it's pretty hot here in the summer. So you're out all, you know, it's not easy work. I saved up $600 and bought a Wurlitzer upright piano because I wanted to learn the piano. I could see that theoretically it's a lot, it would be a lot easier to visualize things from a musical theory point of view on the piano than it was, you know, on the guitar. Who were you listening to these at, at, at this time? Early on, it was, you know, just mostly Beatles. And then I took a music theory class in high school. At that time, multi-track recording, you know, I just, you know, barely heard about it. Originally, it was all two-track stereo, and the standard was the Ampex, Ampex tape recorder. Which is what you, that's what you bought, right? tape. Yes, I bought one finally, yes. But I had heard about, you know, the four-track, and I was thinking, what if you could play multiple instruments and do it yourself? Now, did you know about people like Emmett Rhodes who were concurrently doing things such as I that? never heard of him. He was doing he was doing multi-track recording back then. Yes, yeah, so he was sort of a one-man McCartney kind of a guy who came out in 1970 with a, a self-titled release that is still to this day staggering. And then what happened was I, I could be wrong Paul, uh, but ABC Dunhill, I think is who he signed mm -hmm. with. And what they did was as so many bands in the 70s it was like these people were worth more as unfulfillable contracts than they were uh, as uh, recording artists. So he signed a contract that basically made it so that he had to produce, write, perform, and release two albums a year every year, which was impossible. So he became bitter and eventually just had to uh you know forfeit what equipment was he using at that time similar setup to you but you had a six thousand dollar eight track which i'm guessing outclassed his equipment but it is notable that uh the first paul mccartney solo album is uh one where he plays basically everything and it's multi-tracked and what that's around 69 or something yes yeah. and he even played the drums too he's a great yeah. drummer he's not as good as your brother though. <laughs> he's really amazing <laughs> there's no doubt about that it, it, it yeah i was astonished when i heard how young he was and i was uh my heart was warmed by the sort of family affair going on with your sisters with the background vocals and so forth uh and another thing uh the structures or, or not like merely one hook. It's all these different elements come together like some perfectly formed puzzle that work together with with the clarity of of a George Martin mix. Most of the records that Paul recommends that are in his book, they're very skeletal and they're intended as final versions. Whereas your record is the opposite of skeletal and it was intended as a demo. <laughs> it's a Phil Spector-esque producerial vision that, you know, is, is epic in its grandeur. And really what it is, is it's you, your brother Dan, who was 12 at the time, or about 12, um, your sister and your, your sisters and mother doing some of the background vocals, the oohs and ahs, uh, a friend of yours named Ira Smith, playing the banjo on In Love Again, and your dad on Come to Europe. Yes, that's, that's it. That's, Talk about a family that's affair. That's it, yes. 
That was, uh, I used whatever I had around that, uh, cause I mean, I couldn't afford to, you know, hire musicians or whatever, you know, as that was out of my range. And the way I did things, you know, I would do it and then I'd, I probably, you know, I wouldn't like it and then I'd erase it and come back and then have them come back and re-sing it. Dan would be playing the drums. So we would record the drums first. So we'd have something to, you know, to keep time with a lot of the you know the spaces between phrases where you would fill in with something either a drum solo or maybe you know a guitar solo or whatever infinite number of possibilities you can fill in when we would play it dan wasn't hearing these things because they weren't there so he felt compelled to fill it in with drum solos (laughs) drum fills Mm -hmm. so there was a lot more drum fills than I was expecting, but they were so good. And I couldn't say, you know, Hey, could you tone it back a little bit? I, you know, I couldn't do that. So I let it go through. I got to, I got to ask you, Michael, I mean, there's no way back in, let's say 1974, 75, as you were discarding the idea of having a band and really settling on the idea of you being a one man band, there's no way that you could have said, I really hope that I end up only doing one record and that it's a private press. Um, how did you see your path going? How did you envision your musical career progressing? And, you know, what did you want? What, what were your expectations going into it? What I want to do, I want to write a platinum album and I want every song on it to be a hit song. This is, you know, that's was my intent at the time. So I was consumed with you know how to do it but no had no clue how to promote it or get it to a record company or anything like that at all i didn't know i had no thought for that it's just like when you try to think about something and you draw there's just a blank there that's what it was for me but i didn't care i just wanted to put out the music so how did you see your career going in your mind's eye what were you working towards i had no vision of it beyond making the album beyond that it was a a, like a blank was there any interest did you get any interest from any companies uh no i didn't did you feel like you gave it a fair shake in sending it out to companies or well i didn't really know where to send it (laughs) i had like you know no clues to you know how to how to go about doing that or to find an address or what i just you know i didn't know that and then after that you have these opposing forces is that you know okay i want to write songs i'd like i want to record and now i have all this equipment to do it you know because you know the equipment was a gradual acquiring of equipment to you know professional grade equipment it took a long time and now that i have all this equipment but on the other hand you know you're saying well why do i do this if nobody's going to listen to it you know there's the both sides of it so i guess i compromised i did some more but not uh with great vigor i with that much great vigor as john f when did you come back to it you put it aside for quite a while right because looking for a goddess was the, is the next documented thing that you did which is approximately 10 years later maybe but yeah well that was like in you know that was those songs were after i did good morning kisses uh the good morning kisses those were uh you know a whole list of songs that 
came right after that. Oh, it was directly yes. after? Yes, and it took, you know, I mean, it took years because I didn't, you know, I'd do one song, well, oh, I hear this, I'll do another song. That's interesting it was directly after because those sound like demos to me. Good Morning Kisses sound like completed works. Yes, and and they were, they were intended to be a, a demo. Um, and uh, I did take those demos to Nashville and to try to get something going but i i you know putting you know sliding cassettes underneath the closed door you know i mean it's just not uh didn't get anywhere with that in what way or ways did paul major's entrance into your life change your life well it was a huge change because i had never heard of anybody that liked the music at all in any way I mean, I had never got any feedback and had, you know, given up on it completely and accepted the fact, okay, I made music, nobody likes it, fine, uh, I, I can only make what I can make and uh, let's go on to something else, I guess. So when he called and and he's, he's saying, oh, wow, I really like this, uh, are you sure you've got the right guy? <laughs> because <laughs> I've never heard anything positive said about this music at all from anyone anywhere and so positive or negative right right it was you know and and even the like my brother you know later on as he grew older and you know he developed his own musical tastes he didn't really like the style of music that i was doing he wanted something more hard rock and and which was very popular at the time and 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 my the bass player that I played with, uh, Jeff, he wanted you know they they were hard rock people, and you know they, they you know if they were when they were playing with me it was like you know wasn't really what they were into. Even though you know I mean we made money when we played private parties we you know we made pretty decent money, but they looked at it like it was something more to make the money. It sort of put a damper on my own enthusiasm for my own music that you know that my brother felt that way. Even though he was kind enough to play with me and you know do you know play the songs and you know in you know his heart was uh he he would rather it have been something more rock and rolly than something poppy like you know burt backrack hal david type of stuff well here's a personal message to dan aside from your support uh, on your brother's record you got to get your own taste brother because your brother is an artist and he's uh, at least here going to be recognized as such. But, uh, you know, not everything is, uh, you know, Black Oak, Rar Arkansas, and Nazareth. <laughs> you were doing a really interesting uh, and, and really something that hadn't really been done, which is uh, kind of fusing the darkness or at least the vocal approach of the doors with the musical sophistication of Burt Bacharach. That was what I had wanted to do. And when I, when I, you know, before I started and what I, you know, when I envisioned how, you know, what I wanted to produce. I'm guessing that with regard to the doors, your sensibility doesn't really seem to dovetail with their music. I'm guessing that the influence begins and ends with the timbre of Jim's voice. Well, that and the lyrics, the lyrics were, you know, 
really, really good. You know, the sound of his voice and sort of R-rated. Hal David's lyrics, you know, he was more of a PG guy, which is fine. The all-time greatest lyrics from Alfie, are you meant to take more than we give or are we meant to be kind? And if only fools are kind, then I guess it is wise to be cruel. I mean, those (laughs) words get to the heart of of humanity and that is just you know in lyrics that to me is just the greatest thought ever and Burt Bacharach mm-hmm. you know he recognized it and he always said this is the greatest song ever written because of those lyrics I would say the greatest thing about working with a lyricist is that you can say this is the greatest song that's ever been written and not be an egomaniac because you can recognize that other person's work. <laughs> well, I think he still did come off, come off a little egotistically, but uh, whatever. He, he, I have no uh, complaint about either of them. I want to get a lot more from Paul about his experience in first listening to the record when we get into the actual songs, but the construction of your record is to me the most intriguing thing about it. I think I could be wrong that it's possibly unintentional. I like to see each album, I think I'm not alone here, as a self-enclosed, all-inclusive sound world. It operates by its own rules. Uh, It's got its own flavors and all, all that kind of stuff. With your album, my first listen to it, it didn't punch me in the nuts right from the word go. Come to Europe and Movie Star are brilliantly off-putting for me because as the music starts, uh, it feels like it's all going to be of a similar sensibility, which is this sort of disco-adjacent sort of sound world. But Come to Europe and Movie Star, they they sound close enough in sound that you think the whole record's going to be like that. ESP Switch, it starts to turn a little bit, and then by 19th Summer, I don't know where I am. You have set the dinner table and then you've pulled out the tablecloth completely and the chair from under me by the time 19th summer comes along. And then honestly, by the time we get to the river, I real my bearings are gone because you've gone from, you know, starting off with disco to this thing that is like impossibly touching. And I don't know how I've gotten there. So the construction of the sound world of your particular universe to me is unprecedented before or since well the thing of the it's it's an interesting thing and you know and both you guys are writers and you may have the same experience but you start writing something and then there are certain required elements and then you know it's if you're doing it right, it almost like writes itself. Uh, I, it's just a weird thing. You're writing it, but it doesn't come out what you want, <laughs> is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Which is perfect. So, yeah, that's perfect. So, uh, I call that the sausage grinder. So, all your influences, they got to come through you. The coming through you part is where all the interest lies if your sensibilities are w- worth anything. Uh, I want to go back to Paul's experience bringing that record home. It was immediate for me. Like I said, as soon as I heard the introduction to the album, I was put in a place that uh, was very familiar, but also had a otherworldly ambiance to it. I was immersed immediately when the uh, 
song started. I was gripped all the way, uh, taking a similar ride that you took, Dave, to uh, gears shifting on ESP switch and then into 19th summer, which is like so f- you feel like you've traveled so far already to reach a place like that. Uh, where, where, where there are these incredible moments of serenity in the song and uh, it was uh, an experience I've had uh, with a number of records where I have to know more. I have to know what's what's behind this and and uh, what were the intentions. Uh, and I relate this back to my youth almost. Uh, in a way, my experience of uh, the days of where all over the country were scattered all these private pressings that the right ears haven't come across to detect that uh, you know something is going on there that's extraordinary was set in a template in my mind as a child watching shows like the twilight zone and so forth the the sense of something is familiar but there's something almost other dimensional going on so when i would put on records like good morning kisses and first hear it i would feel like i'm entering this uh other world i would have a, a sense and it's a, of course at that time an illusion that i was actually sneaking a peek inside the person's mind even though i knew nothing that wasn't presented by the music and and influenced a little bit by the cover probably look and so forth all of these things where the object also plays in a little bit at that point because uh before uh playing the record you you get a little you know like hmm a couple of clues or something and then you put it on and those clues sometimes are confirmed a little bit or sometimes you're you're going somewhere else so i felt like i was entering into a, a musical place that is very very personal but very universal you know feeling like yeah these these could be hits you know and uh say if somebody would have uh picked up the album and get, given you a record deal I'd be thinking, oh boy, we got a bit a problem here if they want to bring in all sessions musicians and other people start getting, you know, control of aspects of it with the label, of course, seeing dollar signs down the road. Some of that magic would be gone that I get from the private pressings because in a sense they're unfiltered. So to me, it's it, it's really a human connection type thing that uh has an uncanny aspect to it. Uh, I guess because you know it, it it's stimulating my mind. And and I'm wondering all these things and questions are happening. So it's it's like almost listening to the record turns on the creative process gears in my you know brain, as well as just uh, listening to it. It, it. it stimulates that. So let's let's start off with track one. Come to Europe. Uh, you put the needle down on the record, as I would, because I have the vinyl of it, not the original, because that would make me immediately a very wealthy man. <laughs> but uh, Come to Europe has a jet-setting Liberace kind of a vibe to it. Literally jet-setting, as in, come on, get on a jet with me right now. Uh, flying all over the joint with the most flamboyant possible piano trills. Not to mention, and my favorite thing about it, this sort of Gregorian chant adjacent, big, huge background vocals. I love those Gregorian chant style background vocals. Plus the wild ass Vegas trumpet, which is definitely touch me adjacent. I'm right on with that. And uh, the mental imagery in my head was going to uh, visualizing some lounge act maybe on a cruise ship or something, something uh, lounge act in more fluent zones or something covering this song because it was a massive hit. <laughs> the shimmering pianos, which is uh, one of the unifying elements across the album, uh, is uh, 
you know, not just chords and stuff, the shimmers and flows, glissandos up and down, emphasize that, like you said, the little bit of the Liberace sort of thing or something, but then mixed, yeah, with the do-do-do-do-do-do and the background vocals. To me, that's a fusion of, you know, elements that uh, also sounds to me like new territory, something very familiar, but something different. And that's what enhanced the little bit of that Twilight Zone, like I'm, uh, I'm peeking under the curtain of life here a little bit, you know, when stuff is served up to me with uh, that blend of uh, elements. Anything you can, any light you can shed on Come to Europe there, Michael? Well, it's kind of interesting to be able to look at the effect that it has on a few people, at least you guys, and then think about my intent of what I was trying to say. And it is true. When I was writing the song, I was playing private parties for, you know, ridiculously wealthy people in Palm Beach. And and they went to Europe every weekend. Or, you know, I mean, they, they, whether they went to Europe or across the street, it was the same thing. And so some of that, I suppose, is in there. Where does Come to Europe come from? You're not flying around the world. You're a kid. You, you just blew all your money on an Ampex. <laughs> you have nothing. You're flying nowhere. Right. The only place you're flying is down the street to play for all these rich people, right? right? Exactly. And, and so here I am. I'm getting ready to write this song. And I say to myself, okay, I want to write a song. And I've played around with writing songs before, but now I want to do, you know, do something more like serious. Like, okay, I'm going to actually do it. And, you know, what do I want to say? And, I, and at that time, the w Vietnam War was just ending. And what I wanted to say was that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Let's never as a society do something like that ever again. That's what I wanted to say. And then I said, you know, well, how do I write that in a song? And, you know, I can't write a song saying United States sucks. I, you know, that wouldn't, you know. So the only thing I came up with is, well, maybe I can say something complimentary about another country. That's, you know, in this sort of the same way the Beatles did with back in the USSR. You know, they were they were being complimentary about Russia and trying to ease the tensions between the two Russia and United States. See, I would I would never have known that this is an anti-war song. At the time, I couldn't afford to go myself, but uh, I could afford to go in my mind. Well, so like I mentioned before, I, I really like the fact that Come to Europe and Movie Star, they feel of a piece. They feel of a piece musically to me, for sure. I think by that point, I was like, okay, so this is the kind of album this is, which it's not at all. Uh, it's so was it an intentionally brilliant move to have these two like-minded and very much sort of in-your-face type songs right up there in your business before all the weirdness and melodic left turns start to happen? Or uh, w was there a methodology going into the way that you structured the record? Well, you know, in the, in the choice of which songs to put first, you know, I, I, the, the first three had do have some sort of thematic sameness you know the rule of three in comedy no i don't the setup is uh, i say the thing then i say a second thing to make you think oh okay he's going in this direction and then the third thing is the thing that deviates and i always think of that when i listen to your record actually that's how i feel like come to europe a movie star it sets the expectations of the audience in the best possible way 
to be, okay, this is what we're going to get, when in point of fact, this is the end of the road for these types of songs on the record. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I never thought of that, but I can see, I can see where, how, you know, how you would uh, structure, see that in a structural way. I can see that too, because come to Europe, Jet Set, etc., and movie stars. So it's, you know, there's almost like a little bit of a, a celebrity world of things or something going on here on, on the surface. But then uh, in Movie Star, and this is, you know, where, and believe me, I hadn't uh, taken any uh, LSD or anything for mm, 15 or 20 Minutes. years since I heard this record, but it, it formed me and, and, and leaked in here. And uh, two things in uh, Movie Star that uh, do that is one, the incredible lyric about uh, movie screens on your blue jeans, where then on those movie screens, it's like, you're bursting the scenes of the jeans and it's on, on the movie screen, on the blue jeans. So that is all, almost like going through in, in, into this uh, convolution of perception. Other thing I thought about the song, which uh, I didn't pick up the first time, but uh, was how, when you have the line about uh, going into the bar, make me jelly in a jar, how the first time it comes, it's in the one uh, portion of the song with the musical background. When those lines come around again, like Bacharach style or something, they're, they're totally different with the, the music underneath the same lines, but the music underneath is in a, a, a totally different place. And to me, that just moves me forward so fast that I feel like, you know, the world is expanding. <laughs> Michael, tell us about Movie Star. What's what's well, the story here? Movie Star. I, I remember the situation of writing it, and and I, I remember my experiences prior to that, which would which were like you'd be sitting in like a waiting room of a doctor's office or something, or be sitting, you know, in a room with a bunch of people, and and all of a sudden, some girl walks in. And just the effect that it has on you is like, you know, getting hit over the head by a two by four. It's the, you know, this sexual effect is just so astounding. And, you know, you're like sitting there and you want to scream and, you know, in, in admiration of, you know, the beauty, whatever it is, the makeup, the health, the exercise, the, uh, the clothing, you know, Whatever it is, you know, you don't know what it is that produces the effect, but, you know, you want to stand up and applaud. They like this should be front page news or something, you know, and, and you look around at the other people in there, you know, they're reading their magazines and, you know, going on like, you know, nothing happened. And it always it was like a surprise to me. So I wanted to say something about, you know, these women that are just extraordinary and um that's how i said it through that song you know the first I, i'm going to be totally frank with you the first couple songs are not my favorite songs on the record which is you know amazing because so many records are front loaded to where you get the you know a couple great songs and you're left wanting for the rest of the track list yours really really builds uh it really builds the next song is really where <clears throat> this notion for me at least of okay maybe we have something like seriously seriously special on our hands right now is esp switch <clears throat> it's interesting to me because it still keeps up the musical thread of the first two songs 
that sort of disco-y scent throwing kind of a deal. But there's a strangeness that starts to creep in. And that theremin, first and foremost, um, it is a theremin, right? That was an oscillator that I built. In addition to the oscillator, which is fantastic, is amazing bass work, uh, quite transportative background vocals, and swooning piano work. And also, I'm very excited to find out more about you know what is starting to feel to me at this point in the record like a very idiosyncratic and quite interesting lyrical voice i'm a shy person okay and it's difficult for me to do do this but you know i would go up to strange girls on the beach and try to you know introduce myself and say hello you know you always wish that you had some sort of an esp spiritual idea of you know what girl would like you before you would you know embark on this endeavor to you know so you wouldn't be you know shot down in front of you know 200 people you know uh, in the sand around you at the beach see this is what this is what's so brilliant about you is that this is a very profound song about going on human intuition cloaked as a how to pick up chicks on the beach song <laughs> yeah to me i get this uh wonderful feeling uh that the song is uh, also just about where awareness, and I'm shy too as well. And that the uh, in those situations, I, I, I can uh, like self sabotage myself. I can even have something I want to say in my mind or something, and it it gets lost because I'm a little bit afraid of approaching and afraid. What if this doesn't work out or something? And uh, it hit, it hits me that way for sure and one thing i have to say about this song too is uh of the songs uh i dj on rockaway beach during the summers for the general public uh which is you know families and just all kinds of everybody there all ages and that song is one of the ones that gets the best response as far as people coming over when i know maybe you know one person that's my friend who's on the beach that day has maybe heard it before but it's brand new to everybody else and it's being played in context with familiar songs that they like and i'll put this in and they'll come over and go what 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 was that they're sort of like hmm you know i can't remember you know who, who did that song when i know that's the first time they heard it <laughs> is that generally the go-to track yeah yeah for, for the dj situation i know what song like if i want to say hey i got this thing you've never heard anything like it before for me it'll be the next song I've never heard anything like it. Nothing. I mean, it, this is a strong contender for best song oh, on the I record. Agree. 19th Summer is so gorgeous that it's hard to adequately put into words uh, just where it takes you. The chorus especially is nothing less than magic. That's it. The, the way mean, that the uh, music goes when the 19th Summer lines come in, the do-do-do-do-do, is just, that's coming from a place where you couldn't anticipate it at all, yet it is perfect. What's the story there, Michael? Please, what, I mean, anything you can recall, I mean, I, I don't know of a song like 19th Summer. I always try to remind myself of the fleetingness of life and, you know, how quick everything is gonna go and you better grab it while you can, when you can. In my experience of, you know, dating women at the time, and, you know, a lot of them, you know, would have an attraction for you, you would have an attraction for them, but, 
you know, they didn't want to act on it or they didn't want to get sexual because, you know, they didn't, you know, they just, you know, didn't want to go through all that or whatever. I saw it as, you know, a very serious waste of life if, you know, if you have these opportunities, but don't, you know, act on them, especially, you know, at that age when, you know, the intensity of emotion is just, you know, ridiculously strong. But, and it was such a waste of life to, the way people, you know, a lot of women operated their life. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, that very um, low intensity sensuality, you know. And uh, so I wanted to write a song, you know, that's encourage live and live deeply and with intense right. feeling. Another reason why you're a genius is that this song, which has had really, I mean, untold instances of profound emotional connection with me transporting me in a way that very few songs have the ability to do boiled down is an advertisement on why women should have sex with you <laughs> yeah that's why you're a genius that's why you're a genius well it, it's just more were... of, uh, what, what i'm i'm picking up uh yeah, lurking in the distance is the way the women and so forth are programmed to avoid those kind of things. Like there's something wrong with just letting go in the moment that uh, they're a little bit, you know, sadly restrained by you know society and everything that that came up to. And the, the song to me is like in your 19th summer or something. It is sort of like you know there are things in you that hold you back from this moment that could be happening now. So it's just beautiful. And then, of course, the stylistic explosion, Rock Candy Roll, coming after 19th Summer is certainly an incredible demonstration of uh, a wide-ranging musical palette. It's a real hard left. I mean, what would you call the, the, the inspiration behind Rock Candy Roll? It's kind of like a like a 50s style thing, right? Exactly, with a little more R-rated lyrics. So it's uh, like a 1950s style uh, song, but uh, there's fiddle in there and and the oscillators back in play, right? It's probably my least favorite song on the record, but you know, one thing that it does give you is, you know, another hard left, which is enough that it does that, frankly. For me, it is the it's the first hard left because the first four to me in my mind program straight out, but it's as hard of a left as yeah, unexpected hard of a left is as imaginable to me. And there are things about it that distinguish it from being just a retread of that. You know, it, it, like you said, with the lyrics and the break, you know, the unusual instrumental sound in the, in, in the break and so forth. There's a little bit of that otherworldliness that I detect on the other songs is also in this one. Yet I am in a time machine back to, uh, you know, back to the 50s. First of all, what was the inspiration in, in uh, putting a, a style of music on the record that you know is going to be an outlier? Uh, and that really, if we're going to be fair, is kind of pastiche. Because, you know, with your musical training being as adept as it is, you could produce something as mind-blowing as 19th Summer. What was the pull to do something like Rock Candy Roll? 
you know, going back to the original concept of wanting to show that I could do a variety of styles, that was one right. part of it that I wanted to put in some sort of a 50s rock thing in there. I remember, you know, you talking to other musicians and, you know, people who like, they were like, okay, this is it. We're going back to rock and roll. But I thought, you know, I'd like to throw one in, you know, just in case. Sure. And, and that timing, it, it was happening years earlier, you know, with the Sha Na Na type thing. Then you had like Dave Edmonds doing I Hear You Knocking and uh, Happy, da- oh, Happy Days oh, right, was like right, the right, biggest right, exactly. show. So culturally, there, there's a bit of a nostalgia thing going on for sure. Part of, you know, the intensity of your vision is that if you just, if you took that away, then you'd have 19th Summer going into Good Morning Kisses. And that's something that you see coming a mile away. But you throw rock candy roll in the mix, you know, we're all over the place and it keeps the listener on on their toes. From a lyrical perspective, what was the inspiration here? Trying to have respect, for, you know, show respect for women. The idea that, you know, you did what she wanted you to do. You take her dancing, you know, you know, you want to have sex, but you don't want to show disrespect. You know, you don't want any type of disrespect you want to be graceful about it in the right context yeah 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 do it in the way that everybody's happy right so it tells a story of showing respect by taking her dancing and that's what she wanted this album is pure libido (laughs) yes (laughs) it really is i love it it's great and good morning kisses what more respectful beautiful song about a relationship and what more you know heartwarming feeling than that that morning kiss and it's so you know vividly capturing the song waking up and starting the day and that song i don't hear the like the sex in i hear that i have two people sharing life so michael your inspiration to write this when i first read it it was heartbreaking can you tell us about that, please? You know, I, I was born in Michigan, grew up in Michigan. We lived in a log cabin in outskirts of Detroit in a little town called Wald Lake. And um, my dad, when he would go to work in the morning, we would, you know, we would go to the front door, my mother and I, and he would kiss us both goodbye and he would drive off to work. You know, thinking back and remembering... This is before Dan was born, right? Yes, yeah, 12 years before. The feeling of security was was really, really strong. And uh, I never felt anything like that again in my life. And I thought, geez, if I could write something about that would be wonderful. What really blew me away when I read it, you know, you were describing uh, the feeling of security that your your dad and mom kissing in the morning before he left for work created for you and that none of your other siblings felt it because time had passed and your parents at that point no longer had that feeling for each other anymore that specific type of feeling and that you wanted to try to capture that feeling a little bit for your siblings when you're a kid that's what you want to see your parents happy you want to see them hugging and kissing and that's what you want you want it so much it's so satisfying as a kid when you do see that. I mean, it just makes you feel so good. You know, like we're talking about my other siblings. By the time the rest of them were born, you know, most of that had disappeared. The honeymoon thing was was gone, and I mean really gone. There was nothing but uh, arguing pretty much all the time. 
Did your parents stay together? They did, uh, and but it was a brutal relationship. What was their response to this song? I don't think I ever even told them that 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 was where it came from. I, I wish I had, but I, I don't think I ever discussed yeah. that. It's the kind of thing when I hear it, I see it in my life. I, my circumstances. I'm the firstborn as well and so forth. My circumstances were also there was this warmth and stuff, and then it got really bad as I, you know, got a little older. (laughs) So it makes it more precious to me, you know. Well, that does conclude the album side. And I'd like to state for the record here that it's one of the most remarkable, unpredictable album sides that I've ever encountered. I've encountered quite a number. So many feints left that you're dizzy by the time you get to the flip. Let's keep in mind that, you know, we had a sort of quasi disco going on the first two songs on the record. And then by the end, in less adept hands, we'd be in Barry Manilow territory. But instead, we're in very, very adept hands and so we are transported through the heavens with this incredibly affecting ballad we have no idea what the hell is going to go on by the time we flip it and of course that uh trepidation of oh geez what's next <laughs> is rewarded in space yeah we get a bluegrass hoedown yeah. replete with uh banjo and fiddle and uh you made the production choice which i'm looking forward to to hearing i'm guessing it has to do with old time radio shows where the bottom end is sawed right off and that's uh, a friend of yours iris smith playing the banjo on in love uh-huh. again at the time there was uh, a little bar near you know where i lived and um they had this really excellent bluegrass band playing there i thought well i would like to write a bluegrass song but i would like to write it with some key changes in it what would that be like you know if you like mick <laughs> backrack with uh, bluegrass you know i mean i had sort of had to learn to play the violin our next door neighbors had a violin and, and uh, so i borrowed their violin and i i even took some violin lessons but i did learn to play barely well enough to play you know the violin solo in love again do you remember the idea uh, as far as from a production uh, standpoint to chop off the bottom end yeah i was in radio shack one day and um I don't know. I was looking at transformers and I I wanted to just put a transformer in the in the line just to see what would happen. And um so I did that and I did it with that song. And it did chop off the bottom, but it had a clarity to it. It added some and I thought, well maybe this is a good thing and maybe uh, my other stuff is too bassy because you know i'm not a recording engineer at this you know this is another thing that i'm learning as as i go at the same time you know in love again is probably the only song that i could adequately describe as you know a pastiche kind of a situation but the rest of the songs on this side are all monsters every last one so let's talk about in the jungle which that song is hysterical to me because it's kind of almost in a weird way written to order for uh a few houses on jungle road in palm beach where you played a whole a whole bunch of parties and so the funny thing about that is any kind of song that's made to order it may it has a chance of being a pile of dreck 
And this is an, a magnificent song. It totally belies its origins. Did you have a band then? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. You... I had the band and Danny was playing. And uh... so, so at this time, you're writing all these incredible songs and you had a band that was playing these songs? Too? No, we never played the songs live. Um, we were playing, you know, party music. Okay, so never your never, material. No, never. Oh, man. I would give both of my testicles. Admittedly, I have a kid, so I don't need them anymore. But I would give both of them to hear a recording from 1976 of you with a band playing this stuff on Jungle Road. Yeah, well, I don't know. We don't have that. In the jungle, it's got those chirping birds it's like there's you know like a little bit of silliness behind some of the production choices but oddly it all works so well the ultimate earworm of all time for whatever reason i cannot put my finger on it but that thing do 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 that hook has been I mean, it's gotten caught in my head for days and days on end. <laughs> a couple of things that uh, strike me about it, again, is the background vocals, the do-do-do-do-do coming in. That brings into me, like, into the mixture, something of uh, a Brazilian sort of samba-type flavor or something like that. Yeah. Those vocals and that guitar thing we're just talking about, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do with a little bit of echo, yeah. both, like, like, work to take that, which is coming somewhat from a familiar territory, into your own place, which I've never heard uh, put together like that before on any other record. Michael has stated that uh, he unintentionally borrowed the melody from one of Tchaikovsky's symphonies for the the melody line. Yes, I did, and I didn't. I didn't even know it at the time, but later on, I I realized that in that song, your your vocals are a little more down in the mix with everything else, rather than sort of you know riding as the main attraction. I think this is one of the better songs on the record. I love this song. So you got New York Mugger, which is fascinating to me. Uh, the core of what the song means is like somebody being disrespectful or cruel to you or something. And what an image to do that, putting the dime in the uh, mugger machine. It's just like there are, there are consequences. Treating somebody bad is going to perpetuate bad behavior. It's amazingly put like that. And I, I like the idea too, like it's an unusual song, but it has some blues, like, you know, structured turnarounds going on in there. Yeah. Well, I was trying to combine dis a disco, like some sort of a driving beat with blues chords. And then instead of doing the normal blues chords, do like suspended fourth chords. It never really like worked out <laughs> the way I really wanted it to. Thank God. <laughs> because I, and I can't believe we're this far into a discussion of New York Mugger without having mentioned the incredible kazoo solo. Well, I thought that came out good. I mean, I don't play uh, saxophone, but it did. I thought it did have a good blues thing to it. To me, this song represents uh, what with the theme of the putting the dime in the mugger machine does like sort of say we all got to treat each other not cruelly, <laughs> cruelly or whichever respect if we're going to say no, say it nice, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's also an amazing aspect to this lyrically that may or may not be intentional, which takes the full onus of one's decision-making process off of one's own shoulders and puts it on all the girls who reject us. 
<laughs> which is a great take on things it is it, it, it's a take on things it, that's all it is anyway georgia peaches another classic i mean just astoundingly catchy you know anyone who is able to write that well typically is pulling from a depth of experience that allows one to write that well you were just a kid compositionally here I'm hearing, you know, the Burt Bacharach influences again and stuff like that. Unexpected chord changes, especially when the Georgia Peaches part comes in. For me, that's one of the best songs on the album. Agreed. It's astounding. And and a great penultimate song. Any recollections behind the inspiration for writing Georgia Peaches? Every once in a while, you'd come across, you know, these Southern girls. I just had to be really impressed. Some of these Southern girls had the most positive, shining, outgoing personalities I've ever seen in my life. And I wanted to uh, compliment that. And I wanted to do it with some sort of ethereal lyrics. That brings us to the ultimate and final, it feels like a destination place. The river feels like you've accrued all this experience with all the songs leading up to it. And then this is like the peak of the mountain and we're getting wisdom from you. It, I mean, that's how it feels like to me. It really does. Uh, it's weirdly scary how touching this song is. And then somehow, even though you could never have seen the LP ending in this way, especially from the first couple songs, it's dominant how perfect a capper it is just a hundred percent perfect you want to tell us about uh you know the female rejection that inevitably allowed this to spring forth from your consciousness well it was the same kind of uh ideas you know the 19th summer you know you'd meet girls and you know they wouldn't take advantage of a situation in the way that you thought they should there was that and then there was you know we talked earlier it was a waltz and i didn't really want it to be a waltz it didn't really have either a lot of the burp back rack type of key changes that i wanted either it, it stayed more like in the folk sort of music type of genre mm -hmm. and i wasn't <clears throat> happy about that either but um you know at the end of it there it was so thank god again thank god man i mean it really has a feeling of stark profundity which in less capable hands could have wound up as barry manilow level treacle i wish i had a better answer the idea that you know you go down to the river and you know you imagine yourself flowing down the river and the river is going to keep moving you know it's an answer but i wish i had a better answer Pursuing the answer too much is maybe the wrong path. You, you surrender to the river and uh, take it as it goes. There you go. That's better. Yeah. I like the piano again on that a lot. The super high register tinkling works perfectly with me with a, a sort of folky aspect uh, as well to the song. My dad would always point out to me some little melody like that. He He really liked that type of thing where, you know, you have a, tinkling piano way up high mm -hmm. and i put that in there for him you know because i knew he would he would like that it goes without saying i give this record five stars out of five there's nary a misstep it's masterfully sequenced masterfully recorded does not sound like a demo to me even though they were intended as demos you still sometimes refer to them as demos which is 
just astounding to me because these are so fully flushed out. <clears throat> and this is, if somebody is intrigued about the notion of private press, what does that mean? Uh, I would imagine there's a lot of junk. Are there any great ones? Your record would be at the very top of the pile to demonstrate to people that just because these are stories sort of on the edge, there's a, a number of songs that if fate was different and less of a bitch, uh, that could have easily been hits. Well, I agree. I would unhesitantly recommend this for tons and tons of different people. They don't have to like obscure music. They don't even have to like music. I've put this across to a number of people from different directions over the years. And of course, I'm steering it to people that I, you know, think, uh, okay, this person has ears. They get the uh, reaction pretty quickly that uh, this is something real, real special, that they're going to a certain configuration of things in music that they haven't been to before. So what I'm saying there is that I can't believe history panned out where several of these songs weren't massive hits. It's extremely accessible music, but accessible without losing a sense of mystery, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's such an astonishing record and why I think uh, it, it communicates. The most important thing for me in music, it communicates, you know. I haven't found anybody I've played it for that didn't get that sense that, uh, wait, there's something special going on here. This isn't like he's playing me another record that reminds me of this record. It's like he's playing me something that's familiar yet. It's like a place I've never been before simultaneously. I'm guessing you give it five yes. stars. Didn't mean to strong arm you there. If you give it four and three quarters, I don't think either of us will be pissed. No, it's all it's it's all good for me. And, and it's, there is a case too. When I first got into it, certain songs rose above the others. A couple of the left turns, you know, as time went on, then they fit into the program for me. And that, that happens with uh, almost any record. I'll think, oh, some things are better, but then it folds into a seamless, a seamless ride with unexpected turns. So let's talk about some record dealery type of things. A thousand copies in existence, right? Of the original pressing? I think it was a thousand. It might have been 500. I can't really remember. In either case, it hardly ever turns up. Oh, is that so? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious. Where do you think they went, Michael? Well, I threw a lot of them out. I mean, okay. I threw a so There, there you go. <laughs> Michael, you got pissed at its lack of success? Or you took it out on the record? No, not really. I mean, it was just, you know, when I uh, changed my theory of life to you know after reading thoreau and deciding on a minimalistic uh tack on life um i sold all my recording equipment and musical equipment and i had no place to store you know all these record albums so i threw them out how much is the is the record worth paul i think it's a maverick one again i i have no idea the reissue on companion records mm -hmm. was that set in motion by your efforts i knew those guys uh i think they they heard of it through paul they you know they came across it through paul so i want to say something here because like me but you know it, it affects him in a different way i think paul has some aspects of James Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life. And so I think it's important to know, and I'm saying this, you know, we didn't talk about having a section like this, but you have had a palpable effect on Michael's life. Uh, you know, the people behind Companion would never have heard of Michael 
were it not for you and and it's important for you to know absolutely that. it's nice that you bring up that movie <laughs> or something because that movie is so much has gone through to realize uh what you have is uh, you already have it. It, it it is kind of a, it's a wonderful life ending sort of thing because most of the people of course of, of these vintage records are in you know my age group and so forth that's something that meant so much to them in your youth and their dreams were dashed in the end they find out out. Actually, more people are listening to their music than they could have ever imagined. In some cases, you know, some of these records, like millions of people know about them now. <laughs> yeah, so so it's it's very gratifying uh, to me and gives me a real sense of value that uh, I could be the person in the right place to revive somebody's dreams and have them in their autumn years feel like, wow, you know, it isn't all lost. That thing I did that meant so much to me. I'm going to be remembered for that, not for whatever job I had or whatever else. My art is appreciated. What I wanted to do connects with people. And I can only imagine, you know, I mean, 46 years ago, Michael, you're toiling away on this thing. You're probably going to sleep at night thinking about you being well known for what you're doing, uh, maybe being well off for what you're doing. And the fact that that didn't come to pass, it doesn't decrease the value of what you put together what you created it's really an astounding work of art i'm curious especially since you tipped your hat what kinds of pockets your life wound up weaving through you know instead of being you know a massive multi multi-million dollar rock star the life that you were meant to lead what was that like not having success i can't say that uh you know, making the music is the same whether you're successful or not. But the process of writing it and recording it and singing it, you know, enjoyment of doing that is still a real thing. So did you ever stop making music? Yes, yes. For long periods of time, I did stop. Did the lack of success from Good Morning Kisses, did that stop you in your tracks? No, um, I still uh, continued on quite, a, you know, for you know, another 10 years after that. But, you know, there are other sides to this too. You know, Jimi Hendrix, yeah, he was a big star. Yeah, he did great things, but, you know, he's dead. Elvis Presley died at 42. I mean, a lot of them seem to have all the success and the money and whatever, but they don't seem to be really having a good time, maybe, or happy or whatever. There is that too. And then... You know, I have to say for myself, I always had a good time, okay? I mean, I was always surfing, hang gliding, paragliding, windsurfing, kite surfing, chasing women, ballroom dancing. I have had a lot of fun. So in terms of, you know, what you put out to the universe and what you get back, I got really good back. I sense that uh, from reading that previous interview you did and so forth, that uh, a lot of the people I contact are kind of bitter about it. But I think uh, I, I get the underlying sense of your awareness of the preciousness of time and of, of other people and so forth. You feel like you've led a fulfilling life. Yeah, in terms of, you know, adapt adaptive flexibility, just, okay, that didn't work. Move on to something else. Let's go. You know, <laughs> don't worry about it. Let's not get it fucked up, though, Michael. It did work. You just didn't um, 
wind up with the career that you were expecting, but it worked all right. Well, I'm glad it works, and I'm really glad to hear it from you guys, and you guys, the, the eloquence and the ability that you have to describe musical things is just amazing. But uh, I'm really fortunate to be the positive recipient of that, and I thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for what you did that uh, led to me having that wonderful day when I first put it on the turntable, and I felt like, oh, here's somebody I already know a little bit before I even spoke to you. It communicated to me like that, and I was thinking, okay, wow, life is wonderful, although it took decades it will only continue to be more and more and more and more people hearing it. The only other interview besides this one, unless I'm mistaken, uh, was in Perfect Sound Forever. You were told during that interview how many plays The River had received on Spotify, I believe. And you couldn't believe it. At that last count, it was like 55,000 people. And these things, they're like our kids. They go have a life on their own that has nothing to do with us. <laughs> yes. Well, I didn't even know about Spotify then at that time. And uh... The River's had... 566,349 listens. Wow. What did you wind up doing in lieu of uh, a music career? Where did life take you? Initially, when I first sort of dropped out of society into this minimalistic thing, I worked on horse farms and cleaned horse stalls and fixed fences and trim trees and mowed lawns and did all that stuff. Are we are we talking 1976? No, this is about 1991, I would say. And then after that, the girl that I had dated previous to my dropping out of society she her business she she was a jewel jewelry designer she got busy and she taught me how to make jewelry so i learned how to you know grind jewelry and polish and stuff like that the grunt part of it but i enjoyed it i liked it and then um at the time autocad which is a computer drawing program was becoming popular uh, for drawing cabinetry. So I learned how to do that. My dad was a draftsman. And I've, I, you know, when I build surfboards or build wind surfboards or stuff like that, I would always draw them out. So AutoCAD really suited me. I love AutoCAD to draw proportionately really quickly and view it in three dimensions. Basically, the last 20 years, I've made my living doing AutoCAD from the cabinetry. My sister is an interior designer. And I, you know, and eventually ended up working for her, you know, and we put together uh, kitchens and libraries and bars, bathrooms, and draw it all out. When did um, your so wife come into the picture? We've been married 11 years. We're going to Rockaway Beach. We'll see you this summer. Are you serious? Yeah, we have a place. We have a place in New York. Nice to meet you. Thank you. I'm Jack. This was a wonderful uh inspirational interview that you've done here. You too, Paul. I didn't really know the history behind these songs either, so thank you. Do you have a setup at home where you can record easily? Yes, yeah, I have the, you know, well, we have a baby grand and I have my synthesizer and computer and I'm ready to go here. You want to see us out with, uh, I don't know if uh, you're able to do this, but See us out with a uh, piano-based rendition of any of the tracks from Good Morning Kisses. <laughs> well, we can.
Thank you so much for joining us on The Private Press. Thank you, guys. Unbelievable. Thank you.